Welcome to Schoolhouse, Equity in Education. I'm Jamie Coppell. And I'm Dina Robinson-Mott, and we are your Community for Just School Fund hosts today. And Schoolhouse, we work to bring you the voices of the Community for Just Schools Fund's community partners, grassroots organizers who are courageously working for the schools and the communities that all children deserve. And we connect in conversation with our friends and our allies in this work for education justice and racial justice. And today we'll be talking about CJSF's work with our sisters from the Andrews Family Fund and so many of our partners to host our biannual Education and News Shifting Justice Conference, an event that brought together 300 people from throughout the U.S. in Puerto Rico. And these are organizers and advocates who have dedicated their lives to creating safe and supportive schools who dedicated their lives to closing youth jails and prisons, ending the criminalization of and violence against youth and people of color, and reforming and transforming education and youth justice systems. As we enter into this reflection, I'm really especially proud that education and new shifting justice was a place of storytelling and a place for wellness, practicing wellness, centering wellness. Because I know that for CJSF and our partners at the Anders Family Fund, We think of this conference as not just a moment in a trajectory, but a bigger contribution to rewriting the broken narrative about young people of color and their communities. And because of that, we really sought to make sure that EASJ elevated our partner's genius. And so that really brings us to today and the amazing guests we're about to introduce to everybody. So here we are six weeks out from convening 300 people in Puerto Rico to learn and to build together. So this is going to be a beautiful moment of, of reflection and of uh, looking para adelante. So we're joined by an amazing group of women today. And I'm going to introduce them to you now. We've got Mercedes Martinez, president of the Federación de Maestro de Puerto Rico. We have Andrea Colón, community engagement organizer with Rockaway Youth Task Force. We have Karen Marshall, Executive Director of Rethink in New Orleans. And we have Leticia Peguero, Executive Director of the Interest Family Fund. Welcome, everyone, to the podcast. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you, Olivia. Thank you. So we're going to go ahead and jump right into the conversation. And Leticia, I'm going to start with you. So our hashtag for this year's conference was Elevate the Genius. Our way of really honoring and elevating this intention to ensure that EASJ would serve as a place for sharing and recording stories that paint a beautiful and accurate picture of the people in attendance and what they're fighting for. So I would just love for you to really situate us in place. And so in the spirit of the importance of storytelling, can you just tell us a little bit about why Puerto Rico was the right place for us this year in terms of sharing those stories and building together? Most people know that Puerto Rico is a really special place to me personally. It is the place of my mother's birth and my grandmother, the women that raised me. It is the place where I used to go as a kid. You know, it is a, a place that as a New Yorican here in New York, I hold really close to my heart. It's a place of my ancestors. And so it was really special for me and to be able to host EASJ in Puerto Rico. And I think politically it was the perfect place because it was a little bit over a year that the hurricanes hit Puerto Rico, right? So we all remember Hurricane Maria, but we forget that there was another hurricane that came right before that. 
Um, so it was, it was Hurricane Irma. Um, and I think one of the things that both hurricanes highlighted was the crisis of invisibility for the island of Puerto Rico. Many people, as you remember in the media, didn't even know that PR um, was part of the United States, that people on the island are citizens of this country. And many people did not know that Puerto Rico has the same uh, deserved, you know, federal dollars for recovery. And so I think giving us an opportunity to highlight both the struggle for uh, voice and independence and visibility um, that Puerto Ricans on the island are are fighting for to be able to go and be in solidarity with the folks there at this moment in time, I think seems super appropriate and um, really special in terms of timing. So it was, I think, both a delight for me, uh, but also just really special to be able to highlight and to give people the opportunity to talk about the work and to share, right, learning that we are able to take um, to the people in Puerto Rico, but also um, make sure that we enter without the history of colonialism, right, which is such a big part of the relationship between mainland U.S. and Puerto Rico. Yeah, Leticia, I just want to say how grateful I am to you for your leadership for the beautiful warmth and the introductions, the way you leaned into beautiful personal relationships in ways I think that allowed us to, to open up a space for meaningful dialogue throughout the conference. For me, it was an incredible learning journey to accompany you and the visits to Puerto Rico before the conference and to, you know, to be engaged in this process of recording the voices of people who have been invisibilized and then sharing those with the broader world. So I'm just so grateful for all, all that we were able to do together and all that you taught us. Thank you for that. Thank you for joining on this journey. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of learning journey, one of the things that we really made a decision about early on in planning for this gathering was that we wanted to be intentional about political education and learning about the history of Puerto Rico, colonialism, what that history has meant to people of the diaspora, how it affects our politics. And so one of the things that we did in August of 2018, leading up to the October gathering, was that we held a, a Puerto Rico learning exchange in New Orleans. And New Orleans felt uh, like a very symbolic but also intentional place to have this gathering given many of the synergies between disaster capitalism, racism, power, all of that that's played out when it comes to, as it relates to education and the privatization of public resources and systems. And so I want to turn to some of our guests who attended that learning exchange to talk a little bit about what that experience meant for them, you know, leading up to this gathering. Um, and turning first to Mercedes, because we had the privilege, really an honor, of connecting with you earlier that summer at the Journey for Justice Alliance National Gathering in Chicago. I heard you speak about the fight that you and your comrades are waging in Puerto Rico right now around fighting for education, fighting to stop the massive school closures that have taken place across the island, and your story was inspiring. And so just connecting with you and having you come to New Orleans to really build with the Community for Just Schools Fund Network and also our Andrews Family Fund partners who are in attendance, what was that experience like for you, and how has that shaped your understanding of, of what's been going on in the States as it relates to privatization of education and education justice overall? 
know that what was happening in Puerto Rico has been happening throughout the world, throughout the state, and it's capitalism. We heard the stories, not only of Puerto Rico, but of New Orleans. It was a sacred space in George University, and we got to hear about the suffering of the people, but most of all, about the resistance and the offense that the people of New Orleans have taken into their own, the fight for social justice, the fight for education justice, is a global fight. And when we went there, we knew that we were not together in this, that we had the solidarity and the support of all the community members that went there. We were able to express what was happening in the country about disaster capitalism, not only in education, but in higher ed as well. What's happening to our schools in Puerto Rico, to our university, what's happening to the working class, and what's happening to our children. And most of all, what we had in common was that what we're doing here, the struggle that we're giving in our country, the same struggle that activists are, are giving in New Orleans and throughout the state. So it reinforces us to continue and it re-energizes us to continue because we know that justice will prevail as long as all of us are together. For me, it was wonderful to know all of you in the Journey for Justice Alliance conference in Chicago, to know you and to know everyone that went there from different cities. All of us are in this together. So the lesson was that the fight for public education, the fight for social justice, is a global fight, that we're not alone, and we need to share our experiences and our stories to have one each other's back, and to know that if we work on this together, we will prevail. Absolutely, 100%. This is a global fight, and, you know, thinking about the ways in which, you know, you mentioned sacred space, that's how I think of, of New Orleans. 13 years ago, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, but we and we know that the city is still experiencing the impacts of that. And Karen, I want to come to you because as an organization that has been organizing in New Orleans since Hurricane Katrina, currently in the midst of this fight right now, when you think about that learning exchange in August, what were some takeaways that you were able to really, you know, both contribute and pull from that? I mean, it was it was really powerful to see the young people there in the space contributing and really just adding in their direct experience of what these systems have been like, but how did that learning exchange shape you? Echoing what Mercedes' sentiments to really get a sense that the fight is global. And I think on top of that, being in the Orleans, I think we regrounded ourselves in our responsibility that we have as being a part of an empire, so to speak, and the responsibility we have to fight so that other folks can win in different spaces where they are. I just remember a lot of conversations where we realized, like, you know, talking to some folks from Chicago, like, they're naming, here's what we got to win so that you can win in New Orleans, and we're naming in New Orleans, here's what we got to win so that you can win in Chicago, and, you know, in Puerto Rico, here's what we got to win, or here's what we can share about our struggle so that y'all can do the same thing here. I think that was really important. I know for the young people that represented New Orleans and were, I would say, like, a relearning or a regrounding as well was some a lot of our young folks are of the age where they weren't here during Katrina. You know, 13 years ago, our youngest organizer is is 11. So a good number of our young folks, it just reminds us like how important this is 
because all of the privatization, all of the things that are enacted uh, post-Katrina, it can become something that's normalized. And so there was a point in history, at least with Rethink and with our young people at Rethink, where they knew what was what was before. And we're at a crucial point in history where we're fighting for liberation, but a lot of our young people don't actually know experientially what was before. You know, so they're hearing from other folks and for, they're fighting for certain things because of what they hear, but they don't know it from experience. And I think that's important to remember because that shapes a lot of like how we do stuff and, and, and what we can do moving forward. Absolutely. And coming to you, Andrea, you know, your organizing work takes place in New York. You know, when we think about the shared history and struggle, Black Americans, Puerto Ricans, fleeing from the South to the Northern U.S. cities, that joint struggle, there's, there's so many so many, you know, synergies there. What did the, the learning exchange, what did you take away from that, and how did that shape your learning? Um, I had never been to New Orleans or Louisiana, because you hear all these stories, you hear from, like, folks that, like, movement builds with, but it's, like, to actually be there in solidarity was very different. And then also looking at similarities and then just differences, like when in Rockaway, um, which is a peninsula, after Superstorm Sandy, we saw, like, similarly, like, for days, like, there was been a lot of help. We saw the disparities between how the affluent white communities um, received resources versus, like, black and brown neighborhoods. So that we've seen. So we, we weren't affected in terms of, like, education much. So that was important for me to see um, is to just hear experiences from young people because I think sometimes because of this distance, you get sort of disconnected. But that's what it offered for me. And... And also just seeing, like, the connections between, between um, Puerto Rico, because I hadn't really, like, thought about that, how New Orleans was just so interconnected with Hurricane Maria in terms of, like, disaster capitalism. And even with disaster capitalism that happened after Hurricane Sandy, organizations are just people, like, taking advantage of this disaster, saying, like, we're going to help your community. And now, like, years later, we're seeing gentrification with that so-called health and resources. And yeah, just learning more about the island, being connected to my roots, and being connected with other people throughout the fight for educational justice, and seeing how it's like there's, there's different issues. So, like, in New Orleans, it's about um, the privatization of schools, same thing in Puerto Rico, and how in New York, like, it's about ending the criminalization of students, and we're just seeing how that just interconnects everywhere. So, like, all of our issues interconnect in some way. It's all intersected. I think it grounds you, it allows you to, to really think about this, again, like as this global fight and how we all have to come together because if not, we're not going to be successful. And I, and I think another thing is just creating personal relationships. Like I'm still Facebook friends or like in contact with folks who I met at the learning exchange and then in Puerto Rico and it's just like, I think in order to movement build, you have to like, like build relationships with folks too. Um, if you just create like this genuine connection. But yeah, it, it just really grounded me to see all these issues and it goes beyond where I'm from. If you have to look at it from a, like a 360 view, like how are folks in New Orleans and Chicago and Puerto Rico, how are all that issues connected? I think that's what the learning exchange did for me. And, and also just gave me like a, a pre, like a preview to kind of say like I'm learning all this history about the island that like, I want to learn, too, about my own personal history, um, and I was able to do that when I went to Puerto Rico. I got in contact with my grandfather for the first time. And, yeah, just, like, learning all this, like, this deep history, I think it was very grounding and just, just humbling. 
I'm so glad you you shared those specific thoughts, Andrea. I know that in our team's reflections on the conference and on the Puerto Rico Learning Exchange itself, that some of those stories of people who were able to connect with relatives that either they haven't seen in over a decade or decades or have never had a chance to meet in person were actually not a tangential part of what I think we hoped to create as an experience, although I also don't think we could have ever anticipated just that level of profound connection. And so for me, that feels like a beautiful transition to talking about wellness. And, you know, when we were creating what we wanted to be the learning exchange experience and also the conference, the Education and New Shifting Justice Conference, we talked so much about wellness. And for me, the kind of like counter to wellness, and I've heard each of you say it already several times, the fight. It is a fight. And it is taxing, and it's taxing for organizations that do amazing work and so often do it with really limited resources, which means we you dig deeper and deeper and deeper into your own kind of well of, of self-care in order to, to serve your communities well. And so we wanted to make sure EASJ was a chance not only for like personal grounding, relational opportunities, and intellectual engagement but just really all of those things in the context of wellness. So I'm going to come back to you in a minute, Andrea, with a question about that. But first, Leticia, I would love for you to share your perspective on a little more from you know your angle on why we prioritized wellness and specifically how and why we included the kind of rhythms and culture of Bomba as an investment in wellness uh, as a part of what we tried to accomplish. You know, as you were asking the question, Jamie, I was thinking a lot about what does it mean to acknowledge that we, you know, are from a, an incredibly resilient people and a, a people that have been historically marginalized and oppressed in this country, right? And what does it mean that both live in our bodies and in our psyches? And that is the magic, right, of the resistance and the liberation work that we're all doing. And yet healing needs to take place, right? And that we deserve, as Audrey Lord would say, um, these spaces, right, to, to be well and to take care of each other and take care of our lives, take care of our children, take care of our communities, and I think when we look at the history of movements in the United States, we hear and read and listen to amazing uh, luchadoras and trabajadoras and, you know, workers and warriors, sisters and brothers, and yet this understanding of, like, the entirety of our pain and struggle and liberation is oftentimes left out, right? There's like the thing that happens at home and there's the thing that happens in movements. And I think for, I know for me and, and for you, right? At Communities for Just Schools, part of it was how do we begin to acknowledge that all of this is who we are? And in order to do the work, and I've, you know, I've said this before, not just for now, but for seven generations in the future. We do need to um, give ourselves time and energy and space to bring it all together, right? We are the descendants of people that are have been incredibly resilient. <laughs> we are here today, and we are the descendants of people that 
also have been historically oppressed and marginalized and that we carry that in our body, in our bones. And that is what makes, I think, the idea of liberation to me so exciting and beautiful and hard. I would say for all Latinx people, right? But for sure, for, for the Boricuas, you know, the drum and the New Yorkans, the drum is a healing source. We know that this music was brought over in the passage uh, to the islands of the Caribbean and Puerto Rico from the slaves that were brought over to cut sugarcane. And, and so to hear, and I'm sure you all felt it, right, the power of the call and response and the drum um, was not just healing, but was also how do we acknowledge this incredible history that colonialism has tried to drown out? How do we take this opportunity where we're all together um, talking about who Mercedes and and KG and, 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 right, like everybody said it. Everybody said that the global struggle, how do we take this opportunity to acknowledge that, but also lift up this history that's been, to some extent, that they've tried to silence and that we know is part of the healing for not just people in Puerto Rico, but for us all. So I think for us going into it, this was some of our thinking, and I was excited to see people dance and sing and enjoy as well as, like, work really hard <laughs> and make connections. Um, but I think it's really beautiful to see that we can do it all as we're doing movement work. Speaking of seeing people dance, one of my favorite moments at the Puerto Rico Learning Exchange was actually, Andrea, when you and uh, Manuela, our sister at Andres as well, we're dancing together. She was kind of teaching you some moves. And again, I think that was just such a, like a gift, right? To see that for me, it felt like I was receiving a gift, but I'd love to hear your reflections on, you know, how you're learning in the context of the wellness and your exposure in both of these spaces, how they impacted you, you know, as a woman of the diaspora living in New York and kind of being able to be on the Island. Before Bomba was even like talked about or introduced during one of the things. And I think just simply hearing the music and dancing reminds you it's like this ancestral experience and ground you and it's just like these natural movements. And then also when we were in Puerto Rico the first night we went to Bombato where Manuela and Alice was playing and like it was just like this amazing experience dancing, hearing the music and Again, it, it just like gets you in touch with your roots. It's a part of wellness. And the actual wellness spaces too, um, were amazing. The Reiki, the massages, the acupuncture. It's important because I feel like a lot of time as organizers and people who work in grassroots organizations, you don't get much time to do it. So finding time to incorporate it, I think is very important because a lot of organizers do get burnt out. So it's important that we create those wellness spaces to heal and to also discussions in general throughout the, the conference, the theme of like just connecting with folks, um, whether that's reconnecting because you met them in New Orleans or it's meeting them for the first time, but being able to just talk about our struggles in our cities and Puerto Rico, just like what that means and just how it lives in our bodies, whether that's like how we show up to spaces, how sometimes maybe we don't show up. I think it's, I think that was really important. But I think this overall, it was a very spiritual and then like healing experience with Bomba and the music. And, and I think just being around folks with solidarity 
And yeah, just being of the diaspora, I was super thankful to be able to meet my grandfather, find out more about our, our roots, being a part of the African diaspora, what that means. Yeah, it was a very like enlightening experience that I still speak to with my family about. Um, I was able to bring back, like I recorded videos in the Bombazo to, to show back to our young people. Because again, I think a lot of folks sort of forget about what city for, like this invisibility. And making those connections with how the culture, like the drum, and I think there's way feeling in young people how sometimes we get very caught up in the fights here, um, in the in the mainland. But just I think over like globally, how like we say Black Lives Matter, but like like Black Lives Matter globally, and like what that means in our struggle. So yeah, I think healing was like super present throughout the entire conference. It was very important for me. I left very enlightened, just like light, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. This is powerful, yeah. I mean, you know, healing work is so critical to what we all do, and so we can keep in a fight, right? And we've been talking a lot on this conversation about solidarity and a global fight, and when I think about the learning exchange in New Orleans leading up to EASJ 2018 and our time in Puerto Rico, this conversation around solidarity really came up quite a bit, and and what, that, what it means to be people of African descent and part of the diaspora doing this work. And so I want to come to you, Karen and Mercedes, next on this question of what does solidarity and this global connection mean to you in this moment as you think about the work that you're both doing? And why is that so crucial right now? So, Karen, starting with you. I actually just kind of want to piggyback off of a lot of what we said about healing and about the struggle, about liberation, about how our music and rhythms and various things are healing. And I also want to say a lot of Empowery fight is a big part of the fight, and that in and of itself is healing. Well, it can be. It's not the whole totality totality of healing, but it can be. And thinking of that, when I think of solidarity, I think of really being in, like, actually declaring yourself as being in the work with other people, not, like, kind of tangentially, not, like, when it feels better, you know, just like wholly in the work of another person. And and so to not be transactional, to actually be in relationship with one another, to actually choose, make choices to be in solidarity, which means like we don't, we don't do this together. What you're fighting is not what I'm fighting. I think that was really, really important and that was really prescient. And, that, and I have a lot of gratitude to Mercedes for our experience, um, myself and the young people that went down to Puerto Rico, that was a big part of our experience, was really not just like intellectually, which we learned a lot intellectually about what's happening right now and how privatization manifests itself in all of the bad actors that are that are connected to Puerto Rico and New Orleans, like specifically tied to the both, both spaces. And I think we learned, we just learned together, we learned what it means to be doing that work in Puerto Rico, the resistance work in Puerto Rico. I learned a lot from just not even what Mercedes says, but how she engages mm-hmm. the folks that she's in struggle with. We learned so much from that. We were not only inspired, but we felt in a good way challenged to like, yo, we got to step our game up. I think solidarity means you take the challenge instead of like kind of backing down a little bit or making excuses for why something wouldn't work. I think solidarity mm-hmm. means like, all right, I got you. You just told me to get my weight up. We gonna do what we gotta do to get our weight up. That's powerful. And turning to you on this same question, Mercedes, what does the solidarity and global connection mean to you in this moment, and 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 why is it so crucial right now? 
for me, it was a true blessing to to meet Karen and rethink and her work and meet the Jews that she brought to Puerto Rico and being able to have them meet Puerto Rican students. And right now we have a project on, on our minds to do a student exchange program between our Jews in Puerto Rico and New Orleans that will last, you know, is a long-lasting relationship to build bonds of solidarity within our work. Taking all the people from community to your for your school to Republica de Peru School in San Juan and opening our doors and our hearts to all of you while you talk to our students that talk to you about their experience against school closures and why was it important for them to win and how did they do it and you listening to what they had to say and caring about what they had to say and bringing bringing them food and comfort and being there for them. So solidarity and you know, the working class together, the entire globe fighting together for the same thing, knowing that we are together in this, that it's not about how many times you may fall down because capitalism hit you very hard. In our case, it's after capitalism, as it happened in the world as well, is something very hard to fight, but knowing that we have each other, knowing that we are not giving up, knowing that our acts are full of love, because we love our students and we love our countries and we love what we do and we're fighting the good fight for social justice is very important. So it's just not about being in the conference, but about the relationships that we built with so many people that are going to be long lasting, that are personal relationships right now. And it's when you, you know, you transcend from becoming comrades to becoming family because it's the people that you choose to fight for very well with and it's, for me and the FMPR, having this opportunity has just been wonderful. I have to say that just hearing you describe this idea of a student exchange program, this idea of really connecting, long-lasting relationships, this is everything we dream for <laughs> in this gathering. So that that is just really powerful because we always knew that we wanted this experience to live well beyond a conference, well beyond a gathering. So that's just powerful. And you mentioned, Mercedes, disaster capitalism, um, and we know that that is a thread in all of this. Just, again, turning to you and also to Karen, what would you want our listeners to know quickly about disaster capitalism as it relates to education? What what should we be paying attention to? What do we need to know about this? First of thing we would need to know is that the problem is capitalism. Disaster capitalism is just the government taking advantage to accelerate their plans of destroying every public service in our country or in any country, as a matter of fact. Travelers just think in case of education, they think of our students as profit, as merchandise, disposable merchandise, and they don't believe our children have um, the right to a quality, accessible, free education. They just want to privatize everything that's on their hands to make profit out of people suffering. In Puerto Rico, that will look like 442 schools that have been shut down by the government in one year. It started way long before the hurricane, as it was part of the plan, but it was exacerbated afterwards when people were so vulnerable, when people had no electricity, when people had no water, when we were losing lives of our persons here in Puerto Rico, family members and friends, where people are fleeing the country because they can't live here because their health is compromised and they don't have any into a machine that will prolong their life. So is the government being so abusive 
against his people and accelerating their agenda to privatize the university, to consolidate campuses, to shut down campuses, to fire and lay off professors in order for them to control the population, in order for them to make profit out of misery. They have been making in Puerto Rico $35 billion a year in profit. Corporate reformers and foreign companies have been making that profit, only paying a 4% tax in a country. So this is a tax haven for them. This is a fiscal paradise for them while the people of Puerto Rico are suffering. But the only good thing that has come out of all of this is solidarity among the working class, among the grassroots organizations that have risen up. And then, you know, besides the capitalism in our country right now, we are rescuing schools. I'm about to go into a school that has a meeting right now. And the community are is creating an auto-sustainable project for the schools that were shut down by the government. If they are not going to work, or serve as schools for our children because they shut them down. We are not going to allow privatizers to come in and make profit out of our schools. So we are doing community libraries. We are doing the school popular education with University Without Borders for the kids from the community. We are developing political projects within the community so they can acknowledge what the problem behind all this is. And the community is part of this project, doing arts, doing sports, planting, harvesting, regaining what has been taken from us. So if they were able to shut them down, we are going to reopen them and we are going to rescue them. And that's what we are doing right now as part of our liberation process of our true emancipatory education. We're not doing this alone. We are doing this with the support of all of you. I think Karen's input and wisdom and rethinks lifts the work has helped us realize so many things here. So I am really just thankful for for all this. So Mercedes said, said that should be like mic drop right there. Um <laughs> right. In terms of <laughs> in terms of like disaster capitalism and the education system, I would say it is trying to profit off of the backs of our of our people period, our young people, and it's finding any kind of space to sort of privatize anything public, anything that should be free. So find a way to like take it and privatize it and make profit. And I would actually say that it requires such a devaluing of us as people to not see us as human beings. It's not even about our suffering from that perspective. Our suffering is like a collateral damage. Our suffering isn't seen, if that makes sense. I remember, you know, in a past life when I was an economics person, like reading about um, the economics of hatred, and in particular... This uh, really incredible economist was talking about, if you look throughout history, you see what people tried to do to start businesses or what have you that showed how they cared socially about what was going on. And so, for example, he talked about, like, during the Holocaust, you see patents that were applied for, for, like, better incinerators and things of that Mm -hmm. nature, because folks were just thinking pragmatically, pragmatically, which is a capitalist way of thinking, like, you don't care about human beings, you just think about profit. And I think the same thing applies here. Under the guise of pragmatism, which is a whole entire concept under white supremacy, so under the guise of pragmatism, like entire things are pushed forward, entire programs are pushed forward, and it only means continued suffering and disaster for poor black and brown people across the world. And I think the opportunity to connect with Mercedes and with a lot of people who are doing work, in particular Mercedes, 
sort of regrounded us in that and also regrounded us in the need to fight. Like, we can't actually fight alone. We're not going to win in our own spaces, and we're actually not going to win globally if we fight alone. So it sort of regrounded us in the need to really do that. And also, in a lot of great ways, reminded us that we're not alone. <laughs> like, I think sometimes we know that we can't fight alone, but we think we're alone. And I think a lot of ways, the experience of Puerto Rico just reminded us that we're not doing this on our own. And I think that's one of the first things to combat the ways in which capitalism requires us to separate ourselves from each other, to separate our humanity from ourselves, to kind of, in order to survive, you keep your heart in one place, you keep your emotions in another place, you keep your soul in another place, you try to keep your body intact as much as possible, but that's what takes a lot of the beating, and you don't, like, recognize so many things, I think... What made the conference so incredible was the holistic approach to say through Bamba, through some of, you know, through so many different opportunities, we could actually begin to say no and say we're actually going to do this as whole people. And once you begin to do this as whole people, we can see other people in the fight with us as like whole people. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And that's a, it's a beginning, at least a beginning step to fight. So like just to have ourselves intact enough to continue to fight. That sounds like a second mic drop. <laughs> exactly. One of the things that I'm so appreciating about this conversation is that we very organically kind of move from, you know, how the pieces are coming together were about individuals and how they were about individuals coming together to really acknowledge a, a framework that's working against us, a playbook that other people are using. And like, how do we acknowledge those things and have conversations around them and be well and heal all of those things? And I feel like we've done a lot to talk about that. We would never want to convene such a group of wise souls and not talk a little bit about the work you all do on the ground every day and in support of the ground. And so we want to kind of take the turn around the corner and talk a little bit about, you know, what is that work for each of you and do it in a way that continues this, this theme of the conversations that we had when we were together on the island. And so Leticia, I'm going to start with you. Andres has done a lot of important and beautiful work to really encourage and support funders, social justice funders, other funders, to really put their money where their mouth is. And you've modeled that through your actual actions. And so when we think about our work in Puerto Rico, I would love to hear from you, who are some of the groups in Puerto Rico that Andres supports whose work is really important as we move towards justice? I just want to say that Puerto Rico's invisibility is spills over into philanthropy, right? Which I think is, is important to say for no particular reason, right? It isn't that Puerto Rico ha is, you know, a different country or can't take in money or has a different 501c3 status, the nonprofit sector. And yet, even uh, here in my institution, the institution that I represent, we've struggled with moving dollars, right? So I think it's important to to highlight that the invisibility, you know, is so deeply rooted in the relationship between the United States and PR that even in the philanthropic institutions, you know, it's actually a struggle for many of us that are in, in the social justice part of philanthropy, actually, you know, to get dollars to the island. But with that said, I think, you know, I am excited to uh, support 
uh, the Hurricane Maria Fund and, you know, Sermara Caro Diaz, who I think is an amazing organizer and really uh, was our connection, right, to a lot of the groups that many were able to meet. You know, we support El, El Instituto de Desarrollo de la Juventud, uh, which for us is really important because um, Puerto Rico actually doesn't have a, a, a policy data arm that gathers information about young people. So in the U.S., we're used to calling on like the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities and any Casey's data center. But in Puerto Rico, that's, there's actually just one place that is gathering data on what's happening to young people. What does it mean to have a huge portion of the population be diagnosed with special education? What does it mean to have mostly young black Puerto Rican boys in the prison system? And so we, we fund them uh, both for their operational work, but also because we think data matters. And it's really important for organizers to have the data be able to push and to agitate and to, and to make the case. We fund El Caño Martin Peña and the youth organizing that's happening there. Really, really feel really proud of those connections. And we actually have a whole bunch of folks in the docket for this upcoming year, uh, which we're super excited to, that we're going to support Taller um, Salud and Loisa and the work that they're doing around violence intervention and prevention with young men. And a few other groups as well. So we're, we're excited. Some, some groups we're not ready to talk about, but we're super excited to be supporting them in 2019 and excited to continue to build with the folks on the island and the funders on the island as well, which I think is really important to bring the funding community along. Uh, you know, Puerto Rico historically is in a place that the foundation funds advocacy and organizing. And to me, it's been a pleasure to work with the foundations to say, you know, let's talk about ways that we can support the organizing infrastructure on the island. So, Andrea, I want to turn to you next. I feel like my own roots in organizing come out of New York City, and so I'm, I'm, I try not to be biased. But, um, you know, when I look at all that continues to happen in New York and how young people have really been holding down that fight for so long, and you've seen so much progress that I know feels really slow um, but has moved the needle forward. I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about the campaign that you just launched. So I know that just over a week ago, Urban Youth Collaborative and other groups came together to officially launch your petition, End Arrests and Summons in New York City Schools. So I wanted you to have a chance to kind of talk a little bit about what you would want people to know about the fact that there actually has to be a campaign to end arrests and summonses in, in New York City Schools. I think the biggest thing is realizing that not only is this educational justice, but it's broad racial justice. And how we see these disparities every single time that statistics are released, the fact that black and Latinx youth are punished more for the same offenses or same things as white counterparts. Mm -hmm. And I think it just goes back to criminalization. And we were recently in a meeting with, with an appointed official from the DOE mentioning how suspensions and how that's how it's historic in terms of how in New York City they weren't really seen much, but then when integration started happening, that's when you really start like saw suspension rates start to rise. And it's interesting because a DOE official can see that. I shortly after that I brought up like, well then what about police and schools? Because it was the same way. Um, it was after integration, that's when police were introduced into schools, 
And that was just like a fluid conversation. And I mean, it's hard to get to a middle ground with, with officials. I think it's just sad when, when you see people like praising New York City as like this great sanctuary and like liberal, quote unquote, whatever that means, city. And how really we're not, like we're not champions in much, not even um, education. When you see like Chicago and San Francisco where like the, the maximum suspension is like, we're between like 10 and 30 days and with us in New York City it's 180 days. So I guess now we're getting to a little more of the work we're doing. So ending arrest and summons, that's like our, our catchphrase, but it would end arrest, summons, and juvenile reports in New York City schools for low-level infractions and misdemeanors. Um, so that's another thing we were having a conversation about with these officials, like what falls under that umbrella and how for us, like, it would ideally no police would be allowed into our schools to arrest or give summons to students. But I think right now we're aiming for, you know, like the biggest misdemeanors right now is, well, the first thing is low levels of marijuana oh, and then disorderly conduct. And how disorderly conduct is very ambiguous and just like could mean anything. Hopefully, um, we're looking to introduce legislation, which would be the strongest thing because we are pushing the mayor to um, sign an operations order, which he has done in the past with possession of marijuana and with smoking in public. Basically, um, telling the commissioners to tell his officers that they can no longer arrest, well, that guiding them cannot arrest folks who are, are doing both of those things. And so we're trying to push him to issue an operations order, which would again tell the commissioners to tell his officers, because that's another thing, school safety agents in New York City schools are a part of the NYPD, so it's like a contract. It's not like this outside private security group, it's actual officers. And so the mayor actually has said, like, no. He had a town hall a few weeks ago in Rockaway, and one of our young people just flat out asked him, like, are you going to end the wrestling summons um, in New York City schools? Can you commit to that? And he just flat out said no. So go around him and introduce legislation so that when the next mayor comes in, you can't really get rid of it. And then last piece, up in Albany, we have uh, something called the Safe and Supportive Schools Act, which would reduce the amount of days that a student can be suspended from 180, which is a whole entire school year. So if it happens in the middle of the year, it carries on to the next year. So 20 days is like about a month, but it's a lot better. The OE officials are talking about possibly aiming for something lower than 20 days because it shouldn't really need to be explained, but there's no reason why you, you're taking class time from students for an entire school year a lot of uh, what they're called like superintendent suspensions, 180 days, tend to be um, for fighting, like for fights that involve like injuries. But really looking at alternatives, like so restorative justice, why did you fight? Also like peer mediation, and just really getting to the root of the problem. And that's just what we're asking. And then the second piece of the bill is to eliminate suspension for K-3 students because it's ridiculous. Like there's kindergartners um, who are getting suspended. Yeah, this goes back to this colonization piece and how we shouldn't feel this way in our schools. And, and yeah, just, just looking at it from like this racial justice lens and how unjust it is and how disgusting and how it just internalizes. So like students who aren't involved in this work just go through metal detectors and see like all this investment and heavy policing and just assume like 
myself included and everyone around me, like, we're just criminals by default, and, like, that's how we're treated. And really trying to change that narrative, I, I think it's changing the narrative of how young people of color in this city are not criminals and how we actually need nurturing and how we need resources and we're, we're simply not getting that. So, Well, this was another enriching conversation for which I have so much gratitude. And I just want a final reflection for me is that this podcast is one that we're going to call Palante in Puerto Rico, which, you know, Palante is actually a phrase that was coined by the Young Lords in New York as their work was kicking off in the late 60s and into the early 70s. And it's really this idea of para adelante, you know, moving forward, that we're looking forward together. And that's what they named the newspaper that they used to communicate in their struggle. And I just, I just feel like in all that we've been talking about and the ways in which, for example, as, as Andrea said, that, you know, like Black Lives Matter globally, I think that they would be proud of us. The Young Lords would be proud of us for building these global bridges and valuing the healing and wellness that is so necessary as we seek to sustain this fight that will lead us to liberation. So um, it's really been an honor to be in this conversation and, and headed para adelante. Well, this has been a powerful conversation. And to close us out, we just want to thank our incredible guests for joining us today. Mercedes Martinez, Andrea Colon, Karen Marshall, and Leticia Peguero. Thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your brilliance. Thank you so much. We love you. Um, for all of our listeners, stay connected with our guests. Please visit the summary section on our podcast link where you'll find names, social media handles, and organizational contact information for each guest. We hope that those of you listening will continue to follow the powerful organizers um, that you heard from today and that you will also stand in solidarity with us in this fight for education justice. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.